Hi, everybody. Can you hear me okay? I can hear myself, so. Um, my name is Maurice Shema. Uh, I am a staff writer with The Marshall Project. We're a criminal justice-focused uh, journalism outlet based in New York, though I'm from here in Austin. And uh, today, uh, thanks for coming. This is the final panel of the day. It is called, Can the Government Really Take Your Stuff? Because had we called it civil asset forfeiture, nobody would be here, right? It's a pretty wonky set of words. But um, so we've got five great distinguished panelists today who are going to discuss this. Um, I'll start, I guess, all the way over there. Senator Connie Burton from Colleyville has represented Senate District 10 since 2014. She serves as vice chairwoman of the Senate Administration Committee and sits on the Criminal Justice, Health, Human Health and Human Services, and Natural Resources and Economic Development Committees. Prior to her election, uh, she served on the steering committee of the Northeast Tarrant Tea Party and was later elected vice president of the um, Northeast Tarrant County Tea Party Board. Got that right? Okay, great. Um, uh, sheriff Harold Evanson has served as sheriff of Rockwall County since 2001. Before his election, he founded and managed Harold Evanson & Associates, a consulting firm and investigative company. Uh, he also spent eight years as director of security for Interfirst Bank Dallas, where he oversaw the bank's security program and coordinated its executive protection program. Um, uh, District Attorney William Lee Hahn has served with the Polk County DA's office since 1996 when he was first appointed Assistant Criminal District Attorney for the Felony Division. He was previously a lead appellate counsel for the state and has served on the board of directors for the Texas District and County Attorneys Association since 2008. Uh, he's also the past president and chairman of the board of TDCAA and presently serves on the Criminal Justice Council for the State Bar of Texas. Um, Senator Juan Chuy Hinojosa um, of McAllen has represented Senate District 20 since 2003, uh, Vice Chairman of the Senate Finance Committee and a member of the Sunset Advisory Commission, also serves on transportation, natural resources, economic development, agriculture, water and rural affairs. You're very busy. Uh, previously, he served in the Texas House and in the U.S. Marine Corps during the Vietnam War. And finally, Arif Panju is the managing attorney at the Institute for Justice's Texas office. He litigates property rights, First Amendment, educational choice, and economic liberty cases in federal and state courts. Uh, his work has been featured in outlets including the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, and of course the Texas Tribune. He sits on the board of directors for the Freedom of Information Foundation of Texas, has clerked on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and is a graduate of SMU Law School. So uh, we're going to jump into this, which is a subject that I think no one had really heard uh, you know, in terms of the, the broader public. Uh, until a few years ago, now civil asset forfeiture has been the subject of a John Oliver segment. It's been in the New Yorker, the Washington Post, the New York Times constantly. It's uh, something that people talk about. And uh, there are some real kind of dividing lines that have emerged, um, perhaps most famously recently uh, when President Trump was meeting with a group of sheriffs, including Sheriff Evanson, and uh, the subject came up, and President Trump uh, expressed enthusiastic support for asset forfeiture as an institution, and also um, Attorney General Jeff Sessions has kind of followed suit and uh, recently sent directives um, in support of the practice. Uh, but it is also a practice that has um, had a lot of, kind of gotten a lot of heat in recent years. So I want to just kind of uh, go down the panel and each of you just take a minute or two uh, to say kind of either how you got interested in the subject, what you see as sort of necessary to happen 
um, or, or even to reflect on the last year or two of kind of uh, news on this subject and what you think we all should really be talking about when we talk about civil asset forfeiture. I'd like to take it, let me uh, kick it off. To answer the question that the panel asks, can the government actually take your stuff? The answer is unfortunately yes, but it's unconstitutional. In the upside down world of civil asset forfeiture, um, what we see is that civil forfeiture currently in its use all across the country, including here in Texas, represents one of the greatest assaults on private property rights in the nation today. <clears throat> About 32 years ago in 1989, the Texas legislature granted uh, and amended the Code of Criminal Procedure, Chapter 59, to allow law enforcement uh, to use the criminal code to go to civil court and use the civil courts to, to forfeit people's property that they've seized, even if they've never obtained a conviction, even if they've never even arrested or filed criminal charges against a person. So think about that. Uh, your innocence is irrelevant when it comes to forfeiture because you can lose that property even if you are perfectly innocent. One of the problems with civil forfeiture today is also the profit incentive that is also baked into the code. Local agencies that use this power and local DA's offices can keep up to 70% of the proceeds of the very forfeitures that they engage in. And what we've seen at the Institute for Justice is that doing that, having this profit incentive, has skewed law enforcement priorities and really perverse them where you're basically pursuing property as opposed to justice, where you see instances and a trend across the country of seizing first and asking questions later. And the legislature has done all kinds of things to try to address that over the past couple of sessions, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that today. Perhaps I'll leave you with this. Um, just this past year, in 2017, while this is being debated in the legislature and all these reforms are, are being pushed uh, by people of both parties that we'll hear about today, there was a gentleman in Arlington, Texas, uh, his name is Mr. Olvera, a 50-some-year-old painter who had lent his truck to his son to visit a family member. And unbeknownst to him, the family member that lived in a different part of Texas, north of Dallas, was selling marijuana. And the police happened to bust him that day. Unfortunately, they arrested Mr. Olvera's son, later dropped charges, but they took Mr. Olvera's truck. He spent most of this year trying to get his truck back <clears throat> unsuccessfully. Now, this was a particularly big problem for Mr. Olvera. Uh, because the Collin County DA's office knew that Mr. Oliveira had stage four cancer, that he needed his truck to go to treatment, that he needed his truck to go to work. Yet throughout all of this, and knowing all these things, and knowing that he was perfectly innocent, he was in a different town, and that his son had no charges against him, they still wouldn't give him his truck back. This really highlights the perverse incentives that civil forfeiture bakes into law enforcement priorities and why reform is necessary. Um, you know, I was here in 1989. Uh, when that uh, bill was passed uh, out of my committee, the Committee on Criminal Jurisprudence on the House side, uh, I think uh, former Attorney General Dan Morales was chair. Uh, and I had opposed, I still oppose, civil forfeiture. Uh, there's several problems with it. One, I think it's really not good public policy. Uh, number two, uh, you can take property away from an innocent citizen uh, without having any connection whatsoever to committing any type of crime. Uh, number three, uh, I think it's wrong the, that we allow our police officers to keep those monies uh, and put them in their pocket for whatever use they need, uh, whether new uniforms, salary increases, equipment, uh, investigations. Uh, and to me, uh, that's not the way to run our law enforcement. It's unbecoming uh, for law enforcement to be out there uh, policing for profit. Uh, trying to find ways to make more money uh, to the point that uh, civil forfeiture, instead of being 
uh, a tool of law enforcement. It's really uh, for gener general revenue-generating purposes. Uh, and and if that money ought to be turned over to the general fund, county level, the sheriff, uh, municipalities, the police, for the state, for the state of Texas, and that they elect the public officials, then redistribute those, those monies uh, any which way uh, they want to, or take care of the needs of the police, but not have the police keep those, those monies. Uh, and one of the biggest problems is that uh, the evidence that's required uh, to take somebody's property, uh, it's uh, the preponderance of evidence, or the, the, the preponderance of the evidence. Uh, that's a very low standard. Uh, and we need a higher standard uh, to make sure it's got to be uh, clear and convincing uh, that the police or the government is taking away pro property from a citizen because that citizen is involved in a criminal activity or there's a nexus or, or, or some connection uh, that shows that that citizen had some criminal activity going on. The problem has been uh, that and I can tell you this for a fact, now I serve in the Texas legislature on the Committee of Criminal Jurisprudence, on the Criminal Justice Committee, uh, and we've tried, I mean, there are all type of abuses, and we come in, correct them, uh, band-aid here, band-aid there, change the law here, modify this, modify that. But the reality is uh, that the concept itself, uh, uh, to me, is not good public policy. When you end up taking property away from a citizen who's committed no crime whatsoever, because many times they're intimidated when a, an officer stops them on the highway on 281 and says, can I search your vehicle? And if they have two or $3,000 cash, or in some instances, valuable property, gold watch, rings, anything of value, uh, the, police, the police officer thinks, not any proof whatsoever, thinks that you're committing a crime, someone else connected, connected to drugs, well, guess what? They can take it away. And many times, the driver, the citizen, uh, is scared and shocked. Uh, and many times, they end up not fighting in court to get back the property because the cost of having to fight the government in court to get back the property sometimes is really greater than the cost or, or what the property is worth. Uh, and, and it just doesn't make good public policy to do that. Uh, and now, in some instances uh, uh, that I read, now you have a lot of DAs kind of suing uh, a citizen uh, who sues to try to recover the property. And the burden of proof is on the citizen to prove that you are innocent. Uh, that is ludicrous. Uh, since when? You're, in our country, uh, you're innocent until proven guilty. And there's been, been turned around to the point that it's really uh, not good public policy. Uh, I, it's a matter of property rights. Uh, and we need to push back uh, and reform that. It is very difficult to make changes, obviously, because law enforcement, quite frankly, benefits from it. But the reason they benefit is because we, as, as elected public officials, have neglected to fund law enforcement adequately and fund uh, whatever they need to do their job adequately. Uh, and, and one more quick point. Uh, when we passed legislation dealing with civil forfeiture, there was good intentions, uh, uh, but it's been completely distorted. Keep in mind that we have criminal forfeiture, 
where if you are you committed a crime uh, and you're prosecuted, uh, you have to forfeit the property that was used in the commission of the crime. So we ought to have laws in place to deal with criminals uh, that are violating and committing crime, taking away their tools, taking away their benefits and, and whatever fruit uh, they derive from the crime was committed. Uh, and, uh, and that's, that to me is a better process than having someone who is never charged with a crime having to lose their valuables that are protected by the Constitution. It's probably not going to surprise anyone here that I disagree with a lot of what has just been said. Yeah, no, I, that's uh, why we're here. I've been a prosecutor for 22 years, and, and we have pursued civil asset forfeiture from time to time in my office, in assisting our local law enforcement agencies whenever they've uh, uh, recovered criminal contraband, uh, money, property, vehicles, and things like that that have been used in connection with some sort of uh, criminal activity. I can tell you from that 22 years of experience, it is an effective law enforcement tool, and it would be a terrible thing if law enforcement was deprived of that tool in their ongoing effort to fight crime. Contrary to what has been said, it is constitutional. The United States Supreme Court and the Texas Supreme Court have both repeatedly upheld the constitutionality of civil forfeiture. There have been certain instances where it has been held to constitute double jeopardy when it was used in a more punitive fashion that was disproportionate to the crime that was being committed, and so you do run into some constitutional issues that way. But nevertheless, it is a very effective and necessary law enforcement tool that needs to continue to exist into the future. And I do take something more of a long-term view. Um, I think, unfortunately, this whole discussion of civil asset forfeiture has become intertwined with the whole war on drugs discussion. And there are debates uh, both directions in regard to whether we're winning or losing the war on drugs or whether that's a war that we need to continue to fight. But I do think the application of civil forfeiture extends way beyond the so-called war on drugs. Uh, with that said, the war on drugs is changing a lot. Um, with the legalization of marijuana in California and Colorado and Oregon and on the West Coast and other states, Mexican drug cartels are shifting their strategies. In our part of the state, methamphetamine is eating us alive. It's destroying individuals. It's destroying families. People are dying. Uh, the issue of opioid abuse is becoming an ever-increasing problem. We're not talking about just low-level drug dealers. We're talking about most of our drugs being transported uh, through Mexico, through the drug cartels into our country. And the people that are primarily um, um, sponsoring these criminal activities, they're not subject to prosecution in U.S. or Texas or federal courts. They're beyond our reach. So it really is not effective to just be able to reach the people that we catch here locally. You've got to be able to get in there and disrupt the economics of those enterprises. And one other thing I'd like to add, I think we're just starting to see this, and I, I almost feel like the canary in the, in the mind singing this out, but the issue of human trafficking. Uh, the Mexican cartels are beginning to shift their focus dramatically toward the sexual exploitation of women and children. The uh, United Nations Office of Crime and Drugs estimates that human trafficking is a $150 billion a year industry. I caught one of those cases right there in my own county about two years ago in uh, 2015, I guess it was. Uh, 
man had sponsored a 15-year-old girl from Honduras to come to the United States to sex traffic her and paid $11,000 to have her transported through Mexico uh, across the U.S. border. This is the money that is flowing out of our country. Here again, most of the people that are promoting those crimes are way beyond the reach of state and federal prosecutors. But yet, you know, that money, if it can be seized, that property, if it can be seized, you can do that to disrupt these criminal enterprises. We had 10 people that died in the back of an 18-wheeler in San Antonio, Texas in July that were being trafficked. Do you think the truck driver was the person that was primarily responsible for those individuals dying that death? Certainly not. You had the coyotes and other people from Mexico and Central America that were funding that. Here again, state and federal law enforcement need to be able to go in there and grab those funds, those vehicles that are being used to promote those activities. And, and that's the future of civil asset forfeiture that I wish our policymakers would be thinking about. Because we're talking about not just drugs, we're talking about lives. We're talking about women and children that are being victimized and sexually exploited for financial benefit. And unless we can get to that money, uh, we're, we're apt to lose that war. And that's going to have a lot more personal consequence, I'm afraid. Thank you. Uh, Sheriff Evanson. Thank you. Uh, the money, the, the narcotics goes north, the money goes south. They're never together. If you require conviction before you can seize those assets, you're not, you, it's not illegal to drive down the highway with $2 million. It's rather suspicious to do that, and that's why we're required to build that preponderance of evidence to link it to a criminal enterprise trafficking narcotics so we can go after them civilly. I'll give you an example, classic example out of Ellis County about four years ago. Highway Patrolman stopped the truck tractor semi-trailer, found 2,990 pounds of marijuana going north. They filed the criminal case, possession of marijuana, probably a first-degree felony. And they also filed the civil asset forfeiture case to seize the truck tractor semi-trailer, which belonged to the cartel, no doubt, and was probably worth a quarter million dollars. Guess which one they fought the hardest? They fought the civil asset forfeiture because they knew their subject was not going to show up on the day that he was supposed to. The cartel, if they don't absolutely 100% trust the person that is trafficking that, they, not, they can't show up because they'll kill them. They will make dang sure they don't show up. And, and even if they trusted them 100%, which they don't rarely, they, they rarely don't do, then you're hamstringing law enforcement, just like the DA said. We're really not out there after mom and pop. We're not. We've never seized a vehicle where Junior was driving it with a marijuana cigarette. We've never done that. And we're not going to do that. We have to have the only, the best way we can go after the cartel is to take their assets away from them. And in the state of Texas, it's more, it's more uh, stringent to get that done in Texas under Chapter 59. In Texas civil, asset, civil seizure laws, your state has to prove the allegation that the property to be seized, money or assets, is derived from or intended to be used for criminal activity. In the U.S. federal seizure system, the burden of proof rests on the defendant to prove that the seized property is legitimate. Therefore, the state laws are more stringent than the federal laws. I want to read you the very first Supreme Court case having to do with what we've been talking about. In 1827, the United States Supreme Court ruled that a ship's owner, criminal conviction, did not serve as a prerequisite to the forfeiture of a ship allegedly engaged in violation of a federal statute. 
Since, that was, since then, that principle has been consistently upheld by our high court. In, 1820, in the 1827 case, a ship called the Palmyra was being used for piracy against U.S. ships. The Palmyra was eventually captured and seized by the U.S. Navy. Since the ship's owner was in another country, he could not be arrested and tried, leading to the court battle which established this principle. Since 1827, under federal law, a criminal conviction has not been required before civil forfeiture can occur. And in Texas, if we seize assets, we have to file, within 72 hours, we have to file the paperwork with the district attorney. That information is, if we're able to build a preponderance of evidence that that asset, money or assets, is a instrument of a criminal enterprise, a district judge has to award us that money. We cannot take that money. We cannot do that without a district judge's action. So another, I told you about the uh, Ellis County case, that truck tractor semi-trailer would have gone back to the cartel. I'm not opposed to protecting the rights of our citizens, our innocent citizens. I'm 100% on board with these people. Promise you I am. But I am absolutely, I am absolutely opposed to any bill that will protect the cartel and hurt law enforcement, and that's what such a bill would do. Senator Burton. <laughs> Let's refocus here. Um, first off, we're not talking about what our problem is, is not with the big drug kingpins. We realize that that's why um, this came into being. We want you to get the bad guys. Obviously, I don't think there's anybody here that doesn't want big drug kings to be gotten and put in jail. Our issue is with the low-level people, the people who are pulled over because they have some other, you know, they've been speeding or a traffic ticket or something like that. They found some cash in their car, and police confiscate the cash because they think this, this could have been involved in a crime. So now, under civil procedure, you are required to prove that your property has not been involved in a crime. Will you tell me how you do that? How do you, pr how do you prove a negative? And it's antithetical to our system. So you're actually not protecting the, the rights of citizens because our Fifth Amendment right gives us that um, to a, uh, you can't be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So my, pro my problem with it is personal property rights as well as this is a system that is antithetical to what we um, believe in. Now, also, my bill that I had, which Senator Hinojosa has had many bills for many years. He's been working on this for a very long time, so I want to give him credit first and foremost. Um, this was just my, my past um, two sessions was my first. Um, and um, I had a bill that reformed civil asset forfeiture. And in a scenario that you just described, where one of the people um, could be, uh, in other words, they flee and, you, and they, you don't have them, you can still, under my bill, you can actually do civil forfeiture if that were to arise. So there's actually things that we did a lot of talking to district attorneys, um, different law enforcement, uh, to make this a good bill. So what I would encourage is you, you know, y'all to talk with us and let's work it through um, to come up with the best bill, but don't think it does something that it doesn't do. Um, because I think we did all the protections that we need to do. And mainly, government should not be able to take your property without a criminal conviction, period.
D.A. Hanna, I saw you shaking your head, so. Well, first of all, Raised your hand what she said is incorrect. <laughs> is what? It's incorrect. Under which chat, which you talked to her. Tell me which part was incorrect. Yeah, under chat, that, that the state does not have the burden of proof in the case. Senator, under Chapter 59, we have to prove by preponderance of the evidence that that contraband was either involved in or the proceeds of criminal activity. That burden never shifts to the defendant. We have to satisfy either a judge or a jury by, by the same burden of proof in any other civil case, mind you, whether it's a medical malpractice case, a vehicle collision, uh, a suit to establish someone to be the father of a, of a child in a paternity case in order to pay child support by the Attorney General's office, all of those require the same burden of proof. So we have to convince the finder of fact. We have to provide notice to any interested property or any uh, person that may have interest in that property, give them an opportunity to appear and be heard if they choose to do that. Now, granted, in a lot of instances, they do not, mainly because they are guilty of the crime that they are charged oh, with. Oh, are they? But you just know that? You just know they're guilty? I will tell you this. That's an interesting concept, under the, isn't under it? The, they don't show up just because he knows they're guilty. Under the is process, that the way you should be approaching under it? Under the process, the law enforcement officer is required to swear under oath when they file a case with our office and subject to penalty of perjury, what the probable cause is for both the seizure of that property, and if there was a criminal charge, obviously they have to assert that as well. But a lot of times you get a default in a, in a uh, asset forfeiture case. According to you, they're guilty already. Because they are subject to being required to testify under oath, under the rules of civil procedure, and they may incriminate themselves. Or perhaps, or perhaps the, the, what they have confiscated is so low level that they can't, that it's not worth it. And yet it is worth it because it's a big deal to that person. You know, perhaps that's the reason. I think, I think that's certainly an area where prosecutors would be open-minded to discussion uh, limits <laughs> on small seizures and things like that. We've never opposed improvements to Chapter 59. Just like any other legal system, I think you constantly want to improve, uh, make advances, have protections where they're warranted, uh, whether it's in regard to criminal discovery, whether it's in regard to bail bond reform, juvenile justice reform. There are areas for discussion and improvement in all those areas, but you don't throw the baby out with and, the nobody and nobody and is, and nobody is. But the problem we've run into over the years is that any time this issue has come up in the legislature, you've had this, uh, this co-opting of the debate to the point where we were going to totally abolish civil asset forfeiture and reform and make it all about requiring a criminal conviction. And there are all sorts of reasons why you may not want to have a criminal conviction or you may not be able to have a criminal conviction. Let's suppose, for example, you're dealing with a so-called mule, someone that's just trafficking drugs up the highway, and you want to flip that person to get them to cooperate cooperate against a bigger fish, you know. That's one instance where you may want to offer them a deal where they may not be convicted to be able to work your way up that food chain. Let me, let me just, I, I, you know, I, I, I hear what you say, but you're, you're not dealing with reality of what's right. really actually going on. I don't think anybody denies that if you're a criminal or there's a nexus to the crime being committed that that property ought to be uh, seized and forfeited. Uh, but what, what you're not talking about, I mean, Always go to the are, are the innocent the citizens extreme. who are driving down the road uh, and commit no crime, but they're stopped and they have two or three thousand dollars cash uh, and that property is seized from them. Uh, I mean, I can give you several examples. I mean, just in Tanaha, right? Uh, over a two-year period, 1986, 88, uh, the two police officers took over three million dollars. 
Okay? Just stopping anybody and everybody down the highway. So, you know, I think if we distinguish and differentiate uh, between actual crime, I think, you'll, I think nobody's against taking their property. But you have to acknowledge, well, you say, I'm a DA, let him come with me, come talk to me, and I'll consider it. Well, why should a citizen that is not guilty, is not committing a crime, go to you and ask you to consider it, and it depends what you feel like. Every, every DA is different. You know, every DA has a different policy. Uh, all I'm saying is, in terms of changes in the statute that need to be made, uh, the purpose is to show that there is a connection to the crime, you can do it. You talk about the mules, uh, you talk about the cartels. You know, uh, if you catch someone that has a multi-million dollar home and you, and you find that that person has been built that home with uh, all the drug proceeds from the cartels, you can forfeit that. That's not the problem. Right. Um, I want to I butt in and actually spark, Arif, and this might have been what you were going to say anyway, but there are always these narratives of the innocent property owner whose kid was driving a car and suddenly their car's gone. Right. There's also always narratives of... Um, El Chapo and how we need to seize his planes and his boats. Um, and so there tend to be a lot of areas of agreement on these sort of extremes, uh, but then we often don't hear a lot of kind of real numbers, like how many cases look like one of these versus how many cases look like another. I'm curious, given that you are in the kind of think tank world, whether you've kind of interacted with some of those numbers and have a sense. Well, it's extremely difficult to get forfeiture data because any time we've had to draft and, and testify on a forfeiture reporting bill, law enforcement has blocked all of them. The only reporting that actually occurs is a report once a year from each police agency or law enforcement agency that just tallies the big take at the end of the year. You get a big grand total with a dollar sign, and then broad categories of what was spent. Again, aggregate totals. But we have no snapshot on a forfeiture by forfeiture basis on how these actually look. So to even get any data, it takes a lot of resources, but the Institute for Justice has done so. So for example, we know that in Harris County, over a two-year period, and we did a random statistical sample, that 60% of their forfeitures include no conviction. We know that about 26% include no charges at all. Now, I have to say that without a conviction, with no criminal charges, the government cannot know if someone is guilty, period. And the branch of government that should least be given deference to make that determination is a branch that's exercising the actual police power and has the financial incentive to keep the funds. Now, we know, because we've done this in the last two sessions, there have been about a dozen bills to modestly reform forfeiture. Every single one of those bills died, both sessions, both this session and the one before. Neither uh, in the Senate or in the House did any forfeiture reform bill see the light of day on the House floor and get an up or down vote. These buildings include things like Senator Burton was talking about, an innocent owner like Mr. Olvera, like someone who lends the car to someone else and then maybe they get pulled over, a truly innocent owner context. The code actually puts the burden of proof on that innocent owner. Although the police have to show by preponderance of the evidence, which is akin to putting a broom on the ground and asking someone if they can step over it. What the innocent owner has to do is come in and prove a negative, that they shouldn't have known that something was gonna happen with their property. There were bills to reform that, to put a burden of proof on the innocent owner, uh, to shift it from the innocent owner to the government. Those were killed. There were reforms that sought to increase the burden of proof from a preponderance of the evidence on law enforcement to clear and convincing, just a notch higher. Not all the way up to beyond a reasonable doubt, but something that would actually require them to have some sort of evidence beyond the probable cause affidavit. Um, those were killed. Never got the up or down vote on the House floor. The only opposition was 
from law enforcement. I have all the bills here with the witness lists, and the witness list in opposition is very long. All law enforcement agencies and all the associations came out and opposed them. There were also bills that required a conviction, kept it in the civil context, but require a conviction. Those bills died. And there were also bills that sought to eliminate civil forfeiture and make it civil. Those bills died. And finally, of course, reporting bills. Really simple reporting bills. We just want to know simple things. Was there an arrest or a conviction related to the forfeiture? What was the value of that forfeiture? And what was the disposition? Was it just a default judgment? We know that in Travis, uh, in Harris County in Houston, almost 60% of forfeiture cases are default judgments, which means no one even tries to get their property back. And it's not because they're guilty. Right. It's usually because the average forfeiture doesn't make it financially worthwhile to hire an attorney. And because you're in civil court, there's no right to counsel. So the problem is not that uh, civil forfeiture can't be used to actually go after bad guys' assets. That exists. The problem is, is that it's too easy to seize, and it's too profitable for law enforcement to do so. And so it has to be reined in just a bit. And the fact that all these reforms were uniformly opposed, both sessions, including transparency bills themselves, indicates to us that what we're seeing around the country, all these insane stories of people being caught up in this, um, not only has real teeth to it, that it's a widespread problem where the trend is to cease first, ask questions later, and put the constitutional rights of individuals that get caught up in this on the back burner. That can't be squared with any definition of good public policy, and it can't be squared with the principles of liberty that are enshrined in the US Constitution, and certainly can't be uh, squared with the principles of, of liberty, both through process and private property rights under the Texas Constitution. Let's talk about reporting a little bit. Um, I mean, are you all in the law enforcement camp um, opposed to uh, you know, yearly reports that, inv that explain what all the different forfeits were? Not at or? all. I'm, a, I'm certainly an advocate of transparency. And I think that's probably an area where we have fallen short in, uh, in protecting this statutory scheme and allowing it to be su subject to so much debate and controversy mm. is not being more transparent in, in what's being seized, how it's being used. That, that's created some problems in the past in all candor. And to the credit of Senator Hinojosa here, he's been one of the leading advocates in the legislature over the years to the improvements to Chapter 59. I think Chapter 59 since 2001 has been amended I think eight separate times, and you alluded to the Tenehoff situation that happened back in, uh, I guess, 2010 or thereabouts. He and Senator Whitmire were two of the leading advocates to uh, change the law that allowed for the roadside waivers by police officers, and that was, uh, that was corrected. Those are the areas where you need to constantly be looking and tweaking the process, but certainly transparency is very important. We welcome that. I'm sure most law enforcement agencies do, too, but every civil forfeiture case that's filed is a matter of public record. What happens in regard to the disposition of that case is a matter of public record. If I want to spend money out of my asset forfeiture fund that my office maintains, I have to get that approved uh, through a budget before my commissioner's court in open court. So the public knows what we're spending it. And then, of course, we do have to report to the attorney general's office annually as well. But I think Texas has been very progressive <coughs> on improving this, this statute over the years. And one of the things that's interesting, uh, and y'all may be aware of this, just this week 
on Tuesday, I believe it was, the governor of Illinois signed a very comprehensive asset forfeiture reform bill in that state. And if you look at it, remarkably, a lot of the things that were passed in Illinois are things that we've been doing now for a number of years in Texas in regard to the burden of proof, the notice to uh, uh, interested property owners, to the in, in regard to the innocent owner deal. So, so we've been, you know, we've been constantly reevaluating, reanalyzing, and trying to make improvements along the way. Uh, and it has been done through a, a cooperative and bipartisan fashion. But when you start talking about just completely abolishing civil asset forfeiture, that's where you're going to begin to get some resistance from law enforcement, I would suggest to you. And that's, at least in my experience, where a lot of the discussions in the legislature over the last few years have led. So. I think it's important to know that I should just add this, if I may, is that 14 states have a conviction requirement. Yeah. North Carolina, Missouri, California, Oregon, Minnesota, Vermont, Montana, Nevada, New Mexico, Nebraska, New Hampshire, Ohio, Iowa, Connecticut. And New Mexico, along with North Carolina uh, and Nebraska, have abolished civil forfeiture entirely. In total, 25 states, half the country, have affirmed their forfeiture laws. And IJ, the Institute for Justice, have graded all these states in a report called Policing for Profit. Texas gets a D plus, and it gets a D plus because of the reasons that I've laid out. Uh, as most of you probably know, I'm president of the National Sheriff's Association, and I spoke at the National Sheriff's Institute graduating class in uh, Colorado just two days ago. There was 19 states represented there. There was 30 sheriffs in that class, 19 states in the United States represented. And I said basically what the DA said. I don't think we have done a good enough job to educate people about what our objectives are. I'm absolutely, totally in favor of complete transparency. I am. I don't have a problem with that at all. But I am absolutely opposed to abolishing, completely abolishing civil asset forfeiture because I promise you, and I've talked to some of the best minds in drug enforcement around this country, and they say it will put another layer of protection between us and the cartel if we do that. And I've given you an, at least one example, and so has the DA, that if we required conviction, the cartel would have went away with that $250,000 rig to bring in more dope. Now, I don't want that to happen, and I don't think anybody up here wants that to happen. I have also offered to sit down with a group of senators next legislative session. I welcome the opportunity to do that, to see if there's some way we can make Chapter 59 better. I'm okay with that. And the sheriffs that I know all over this country are in favor of those type of things as well. Senator Burton, what's 2019 look like? Yeah, well, just, you know, I, I don't want anyone to get the, the idea that all law enforcement is against um, reform on civil asset forfeiture. I will tell you that I get uh, rank and file police officers that come up to me all the time that agree with where I stand on the issue, um, as well as other um, district attorneys and, um, you know, different law enforcement people agree with me on this. So it's definitely not one or the other everywhere. Um, just recently, um, Stephen Mills, who is a police chief in Apache, Oklahoma, made a speech, as a matter of fact, on this and about the uh, civil asset forfeiture reform and how we need it. And one of the things, that I, I, I want to read this because I completely and utterly agree with this. And again, this is a police chief in Apache, Oklahoma. Quote, we as police officers need to do our jobs protecting the rights of the citizens. You cannot serve a citizen while simultaneously depriving them of their natural constitutional rights. One victim is too many and does way more damage than letting the criminal get away, unquote. 
So again, this isn't necessarily all law enforcement who believes that um, civil asset forfeiture um, should exist. Um, there's definitely those that agree with uh, where we sit on this issue. And again, you know, I think we've forgotten so much um, the role of government. Um, I'm elected to um, protect the rights of the citizens, and um, I believe that taking your property, government, taking your property without a criminal conviction is not protecting that right. Um, and I'm more interested in, and I know we go instantaneously to the, to the big drug dealers and those kinds of things, and we want to get those guys, but we absolutely must protect the innocent people whose property gets taken and they've never done anything and they cannot get it back, um, and um, you know that's, that needs to be protected, and I'm going to continue to do that. Um, we're going to shift to questions and answers, uh, questions from the audience. So if you've got a question, you can step up to this microphone right here. Uh, please try to keep your questions short uh, and not speech-like. And uh, yeah, hi. Hello? Oh. Um, this is for the district attorney. So basically, I just want to ask, if I'm pulled over and I'm, in, I'm suspected and my I guess whatever my property is seized, what is my next course of action? What is your next course of action? You know, I guess it would require a lot more facts to comprehensively answer your question. You will be served with notice if there is a decision made to seize some property uh, that, that belonged to you at the time. And it will set forth the nature of the accusation and why law enforcement believes that property was uh, either the proceeds of or involved in the facilitation of a criminal offense. And it will also, that will be done within 30 days of the seizure too. We don't want these cases becoming stagnant or dragging on for the very reason that you're alluding to. If it's something that, that uh, you are legitimately entitled to have returned to you, you don't want it sitting there for a year or two before disposition is made on that case. But yeah, at some point, you can file an answer to it. You can contest uh, the, uh, the seizure of that action, if it's something that is extremely important to you, it's something you may very well need a lawyer to help you with. Obviously, it's a legal, it's a legal process that you go through, as is any civil litigation. You know, if you get sued for child support at the same time, you know, that's something you're going to have to make an individual decision. Is that something you want to contest? You know, is that something that's important to you to go out and hire an attorney on? But it is obviously a legal action, and that would, be, that would have to be a determination that you would make. So, um, so the well, burden's asking, on you. I, well, I just want to ask, does that mean I have to um, hire an attorney? Or I have to, I have to mm -hmm. spend money to get my property back? Potentially, sure. That's true. Yep. <laughs> I question. should mention that sometimes law enforcement offers to give half your property back. They can keep the other half. And this happens all too often. Um, it's really also reflective of what this is really about. It's about the money. Um, and that's why the profit incentive is really at the heart of this. And that's why it's a problem. Thank you to all the panelists, first of all. Um, this is a question primarily for the, the district attorney and the president of the uh, Sheriff's Association. Um, I think civil asset forfeiture is going to be a fundamental chapter in American constitutional development overall. And one of the arguments that was made in the past when it came to the other half of this, which is the unlawful search as opposed to unlawful seizure, was that this is a tool being removed away from police in order to fight crime, specifically being able to go into um, people who they believe are criminals' homes and, and search for evidence. And 
how do you respond to that criticism that this is, again, that just because it is a tool that is helpful to police doesn't mean it's necessarily a moral use of government against its citizens, that even though it may make you catch more criminals, that it's better to err on the side of more freedom for citizens than less? You, did you direct that to me? To both of you. Okay. Well, first off, we have to follow what Chapter 59 requires us to do. If we, if we stop a vehicle, and how this typically happens, we don't just spot a vehicle and say we're going to stop that vehicle. 99.9% .9 of the time, that vehicle is stopped because they committed some type of traffic violation. And then once the officer starts the contact, those guys that work drugs and, and ask the question, especially if they're dealing with somebody that's transporting a large amount, it's hard for me to answer that little one because we don't deal in the little ones. I mean, would we file a case on somebody for possession of marijuana? Uh, some of them is class C misdemeanor. But would we seize that vehicle over that? No, we would not do that. So this is not even an issue. But we will follow Chapter 59, and I expect our officers, when they stop a vehicle, to have probable cause to do that. And when they fill out their report, I expect it to be correct. And when they get on the witness stand and swear to tell the truth, whole truth, nothing but the truth, that's exactly what I expect them to do. Add, I'm all about transparency. I add one thing, too. My human trafficking case that I prosecuted two years ago arose from a traffic stop, just like the sheriff was talking about. A vehicle was stopped for speeding, going 70 in a 55-mile-an-hour speed zone through our county on Highway 59. And through the investigative efforts of that DPS trooper, he was able to identify that 15-year-old girl as a victim of human trafficking, and ultimately that suspect admitted that he had paid $11,000 to have her smuggled into the United States, ultimately you know, for sexually exploited purposes. But, you know, to get back to your question, the whole law of search and seizure is constantly being scrutinized and challenged throughout, you know, our courts. And so it's the same thing with, with civil asset forfeiture. And if there are ways to improve it or make it more transparent and fair, I think most, most people involved in that system are open-minded, at least if they had good intentions. And with any system, you're going to have bad actors. You know, you're going to have people that are going to attempt to exploit it and take advantage of it for their own nefarious purposes. And, and, you know, we need to do a good job of policing that. The courts need to do a good job of policing that. But at the end of the day, the process itself, itself is still very important and effective uh, in regard to combating all sorts of criminal activities, not just drugs. Uh, just a, a real quick point. Uh, uh, on, again, uh, you have human trafficking. Yeah. And they have someone that is being trafficked across the border. They got $7,000 cash. You got a reason. I mean, they're committing a crime right. uh, to, to uh, seize uh, the $7,000. That's not what we're talking about. That's right. Uh, you know, th there's a connection and nexus. That's where the confusion comes in. We're not talking about those type of cases because you connect the, the money and the wrongdoing to an individual uh, uh, where the crime is being committed. Uh, you know, we talk about innocent uh, citizens who are not committing any crime, there's no connection whatsoever or any type of nexus. And as, as I talk, think about this, it just occurred to me that even when we try to do reforms, uh, we have another big problem that we haven't even discussed, and that is uh, federal uh, equitable sharing, mm. uh, where the state uh, completely avoids uh, any state law uh, to uh, partner with the federal government. Uh, they usually get 80-20 split. Uh, and are not accountable to, to state statutes. Uh, it's a, it is a very comp, complex issue. Uh, but I think 
quite frankly, politically, it would be impossible to do away with civil forfeiture. But certainly, we can do some reforms to try to tighten up the process uh, and provide a much canalize a lot of discretion that law enforcement has to try to minimize the abuses. Can I just respond to one thing he commented on, the equitable sharing issue? I know that's been a whole big discussion that's come up with you know, the Trump administration and Jeff Sessions. That's something the sheriff and I were just talking about before the uh, meeting a few moments ago. We don't have a lot of equitable sharing going on in the state of Texas, mainly because we have a viable forfeiture statute here that law enforcement is able to use without having to go to the feds. In those states where asset forfeiture, civil asset forfeiture has been now prohibited, you do have this issue going on where these law enforcement agencies are now being forced to cooperate with the federal government to seize assets that way. And, you know, really it's becoming less transparent in those states that have outlawed, you know, civil asset forfeiture. I can't tell you the last time in my county we had a situation that involved equitable sharing. It's been a long, long time. I would like to add to that that I've been sheriff 17 years. Only one time in 17 years have we been involved in equitable sharing. We were requested to come assist DEA and ATF uh, running a search warrant in the east part of Dallas when they had the search warrant for drugs and narcotics. And our, our, uh, the, there was a Dallas County Deputy Sheriff that had a dog that was in training, and then the DEA and ATF did not know that until the officer made him aware of it. But the dog hits on a chest inside the house after they had found dope and the guns, just like the search warrant had been written for. And then the dog hits on the chest, which meant that it probably had drugs in it. So, but they, they, the deputy made them aware of the fact that his dog was not certified and that he'd been training with our canine officer and that our dog was certified. So they called our officer. He comes over with the dog. The dog hits on the chest. They open the chest, and it had $2.1 million. That classic case where you got guns, drugs, and money. That was really easy. So the, the feds filed a civil asset forfeiture on the money, and we were awarded some of that money for participating in a search warrant. But that's the only time in 17 years we've been involved in equitable sharing. Yeah, the average in Texas has been 22 million in equitable sharing. But I really like your question because you've hit something, and I just want to briefly address it, which is judgment is not mandated, the exercise of judgment is not mandated by something in Chapter 59 of the Code of Criminal Procedure. It outlines a framework, a really bad framework with flawed laws, some of the worst laws in the country, which is probably why we don't do equitable sharing as, as much. A lot of states with good forfeiture laws right. have equitable sharing so that the law enforcement can sidestep those state laws. Right. But the constitutional architecture that we enjoy has a presumption of liberty. And everything else is subservient to that, including Chapter 59. And the judgment of officials that have the privilege of enforcing the police power that the government enshrines in their offices have a constitutional duty to ensure that they err on the side of liberty, not of government power. That was, that was the point that I was specifically and that's, that was the moral argument of liberty more Right, and the current framework perverses that from actually happening. We want it to happen. Um, hi, I'm, I came here open to argument on this, um, and there hasn't been any, actually. I'm a professor of argument, um, and anecdotes aren't arguments, um, and that's all we've heard, and I, that's troubling, um, because as someone who's very concerned about public policy, policy should be based in data, uh, not anecdotes. Um, and what I wonder about is, I don't hear either of you saying there's Never been, I mean, you said there are some bad apples, you know. Um, 
So you're not claiming there's never been a case of a person, an innocent person, whose property was unjustly taken, who couldn't get it back. What's the acceptable number? What is the acceptable number? I think that's a policy discussion we can certainly have, you know, with the legislature. If there were to be some threshold for minor uh, forfeitures being precluded or handled some other way, perhaps with criminal conviction, you know, less than $2,000 or something along those lines, for example, that, that is a policy discussion that is totally appropriate to have. The question I'm asking is, how many innocent people is it okay if they lose their property unjustly? Well, you know, you could extrapolate that into how many innocent people is it okay to convict. You know, we don't, have a, perfect, we don't have a perfect criminal justice system, but at the same time, you're not talking about abolishing the criminal justice system because there have been errors or mistakes made in the past with any legal system, whether it's child support, divorce, anything, you're going to have inequities or you're going to have mistakes made and you're going to have people that take advantage of that. But I think when you look at the overall efficacy of the statutory scheme and how it benefits law enforcement on a global scale, I think at the end of the day you would err inside, on the side of maintaining that as a, as a tool for law enforcement. The law enforcement officers that I know would not be opposed to a threshold. We'd be open to have that discussion. And I can promise you what few seizures that we've made since I've been sheriff, five or $10,000 wouldn't affect me at all because I don't know we've ever made it in that small. You know, it's really, uh, if I may real quick, it's really interesting as you ask that question, well, what is a threshold? Uh, and I remember a statistic that here in the United States, uh, there are about $4.9 billion forfeited uh, every year. Burglaries only come up to about 3.9 billion. I mean, this is the magnitude of the problem we face and how to rein in uh, the discretion that we've given our law enforcement. I'd like to respond yeah, to we, that. We have, we have given them too much discretion, uh, and, 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 and as uh, the DA said, there, there, there are bad actors out there, and they are, uh, but the reality is there's that good public policy the way we are. Uh, allows a forfeiture to take people's property away from them without due process. The drug cartel is a multi-billion dollar organization. So because of the fact that we've, the, the federal government or the federal government and the state government have seized those kind of dollars is consistent with how big an operation that the drug cartel is. There's no drug cartel exception to the Texas or U.S. constitutions. That's really the bottom line here. And although data for policymaking and, and having a different policy decisions uh, batted around, the bottom line also is that majoritarian rule um, is not what we have here. We live in a constitutional republic. Everything else flows from that. And what civil forfeiture today has highlighted is that we've gone from pirate ships to Mr. Olvera. And the problem then requires a renewed look both from the courts and from state legislatures across the country at what this is really doing, both to our law enforcement, which is not what we want to be happening to law enforcement, and to everyone else who gets caught up in it. Hi. Um, so I've been hearing a lot about um, the cartels, multi-billion. Um, from what I remember, there was a case in Berkeley where a man who was selling hot dogs just outside of campus, and the, the police seized money from his wallet, which is less than $80, and there's a language barrier. But with the money, just those $80, is that worth a forfeiture? Is, was, it really, like, was it worth taking that small amount of money as a forfeiture for somebody who didn't even understand what's going on? 
answer your question, no. Let me respond with another example of where the systems work very well. In my, in my community, in an in a impoverished area, there was a crack house. <laughs> Elderly people, kids were being exposed to that on a daily basis, calling the police department, complaining, why won't y'all come shut this down? Police department would come down there, they would make arrests, they would, they would take the drug dealers to jail. Next day, there would, be, there would be more people in there selling crack cocaine out of that residence over and over and over again. This property had descended outside of the pro probate process. There was no way to identify who all the heirs were that had a, had a financial interest or an ownership interest of that, in that property. We used the asset forfeiture statute to go in there and seize that property, publish public notice. We would have never identified who all the people were that had potential airship interest in it. Uh, but nevertheless, we were able to go in there, seize that house, tore it down, created a real nice green space in that community where there's no longer any drug activity, protected those people, protected those kids from being exposed to that. I mean, you weren't going to file a criminal charge against the owners that were dispersed all over uh, creation in that case. You couldn't even identify who, who all of them were, but we were able to prove by a preponderance of the evidence that property was clearly being used on a daily basis in the proliferation of drugs in our community that was ruining that part of our community. And if we hadn't had the opportunity to pursue that under the statute, they'd still be there running today, I'm convinced. Well, you know, and that's, you know, that, that, that they're somewhat correct. But the statute allows for the type of exception. You cannot locate and that's find right. owners to be able that's to right. uh, forfeit that property being used for the commission of a crime. And even if the burden was clear and convincing in that scenario, law enforcement would have been able to meet the burden. And even under the innocent owner statute, if somehow under probate they found the owners, That's right. and the burden was on the government and not the innocent owner um, to invoke the, in the innocent owner provision, they still would have with the facts that we've laid out. And that's why modest reforms just returns 59 uh, code of criminal procedure back within the confines of what our constitution would require. All right, one more question. I understand that there's two sides to this argument. <clears throat> Would either side be willing to compromise on Chapter 59 so that the rights of the innocent are preserved, but the criminal organizations are not able to keep their property? Like, yeah. I, I thought my piece of legislation did just that this past session. We've addressed all the things that he's mentioned um, before, like the innocent owner type situation. It can go back to a civil... Um, procedure, which is what is brought up so many times. Um, but again, you know, what happens is a lot of times, and this happens with lots of legislation, not just this one, instantaneously people think it says something and people dig in and want to be against something. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, this is what we did with our piece of legislation. Um, I think we took everybody's um, concerns into account um, to where we are protecting the rights of innocent citizens and yet allowing law enforcement to have the tools they need to get the bad guys. And we should let those types of bills have an up or down vote on the House floor. Just like the US Congress allowed uh, an up or down vote on a budget rider just recently that defunded Senate, uh, uh, Jeff Sessions' invocation that he was gonna re-up adoptions and equitable sharing. And it passed unanimously. 100% of the Congress agreed, and most of the country agrees that this is a practice that really has seen um, you know, it, it, its last days, or at least its winding down days in the form that it's in right now. And that's why the up or down vote never takes place in the Texas chambers, either the Senate or the, or the House, because I think the realization is when the rubber hits the road, the lawmakers know what, what the citizens want, and they don't want <laughs> what's happening. 
you know, we, we can uh, certainly find the middle ground trying to work out and address and focus on the problems that exist. Uh, it, but it's a real challenge many times because the county and district attorney association would negotiate with uh, legislators. Uh, but DAs are pretty independent. Uh, they're, they're not necessarily, they're like trying to hurl cats, you know, put them yeah. in the same path. So everybody has their own opinion. Uh, so you have a DA, we have the association being agreeing to a compromise. You have a DA from one county to go talk to their senator or their legislators, I'm opposed to this bill. So it's a very difficult process. Uh, but yes, it can be done. And the process will continue. Yeah. Thank you all so much for coming. Uh, let me just... Let you all know that um, uh, please join us. There is a special reception in the courtyard at the AT&T Conference Center uh, with hors d'oeuvres and a cash bar. Enjoy the rest of your evening. <laughs>